I have something brand new that I'm super excited to share with you. It's called the Community Creators Hub, and I've made it just for you. You can search through every episode of this podcast by keyword, download all of my favorite guides and resources, and find all of my recommended tools for community creators. And the best part? It's completely free. Just go to Community Creators Hub, that's Community Creators Hub, H-U-B.com to get your free access. This is for you, the online business owner who wants to maximize your profit and multiply your impact. I'm Shanna, host of the Community Creators Podcast. I've spent over a decade helping top brands and entrepreneurs create thriving communities that increase their reach, retention, and revenue. This podcast is where I share my best insights and invite you into conversations with the world's leading community creators and cultivators. So grab your favorite mug, fill it up, and let's get started. Well, hey, friends, I am so excited to bring to you my friend, Dr. Carrie Rose. And Carrie and I have been chatting for a while off and on in social media, and she is a connector at heart like I am, which is one of the things that I love about her. But she is a master at course creation and not just like here's a framework for creating a course, but she has a doctorate in education and education and professional development. She weaves all of these things together to create courses that people actually complete and that actually gets people results. And so I'm excited because I want to chat with her about this. I want to learn more about this magic that I know that she does because she's not somebody who's like, oh, I just, I did this and then I'm going to teach you how to do it, which is totally fine. She's somebody who actually has the data and the psychology understanding and the science behind it to say, no, statistically, this is what we need to be doing because this is proven to work. And so we're going to talk a little bit about that. We're probably going to jam out on some community stuff because we both have a heart for that. So friend, Dr. Carrie, I like calling you Dr. Carrie. Thank uh, you, Carrie, so for the rest of the always... <laughs> oh, Just Carrie. How are you? I am doing well. I'm doing well. And, and thank you so much for such a warm introduction. And honestly, I feel the same way about you. You know, like one of the things when I, I get excited about introducing you to people, I really do. I've connected with a lot of people here lately because I'm like, oh my gosh, you need to know her. And it's like, it's that feeling of like, it's not just that you know it and you're coming from an academic perspective or you know it and you're coming from a practical perspective. But I think when you put the two worlds combined, it's like a superpower because you can see it in all the different ways. You can see it in application in real time. Like you can see it like, when you're measuring and optimizing, you're like, okay, of course that worked, or of course that didn't work because this, this, that, and the other thing. And so it just kind of creates a different level of wisdom when you've got both of those worlds. And so hats off to you, my friend, because I feel exactly the same way. Oh, well, thank you. I love meeting a fellow data nerd, (laughs) somebody who is obsessed with looking at the numbers too. Okay. So the first question I'm going to ask you that I ask everybody is kind of funny because I give you a little bit of a warning and I loved your response. And I'm like, we're just going to go with that. Just be honest with everybody. So uh, what's your favorite community that you have ever been a part of and what did you love about it? So yes. Yeah, so I, I was telling her before we started this podcast that I had selective mutism for like, you know, uh, six years of my life, I barely spoke. So I get kind of shy and highly, highly introverted, but I think the most fun that I had was I was working at the Alabama Shakespeare Festival 
for about a year and a half in Montgomery, Alabama. And on Mondays, we would come back to the theater, even though we were off, and just play volleyball together. And it was the best thing ever because it was just like these people that have nothing to do with volleyball. Like our our connection point was really like the love for the arts and love for theater and Shakespeare in, in particular. And we would get together and just play volleyball. And I think that that was <laughs> the best community that I've been a part of or the best feeling or unifier that I've ever experienced. Well, I love that you share that for a few reasons. One is because I think we underestimate the value of fun. Um, We try to really create so much structure and so much formality around what we do, especially in business communities and just having fun and having that shared experience. And you had the layer of other interests, but having that shared experience, I think, is something that we've forgotten how to do a lot. And I also like that you're honest and shared just how introverted you are. I think a lot of people say they're introverts and I'm like, yeah, I don't know about that. But you truly have gone into the depths of being an introvert. And yet you understand the value of community and relationships. But I think it's important for us as business owners and community creators to realize that not everybody loves being in big communities as much as we do. Not everybody wants to engage in larger communities like we do. And so oftentimes I think we try and get 100% participation and pull people out of lurking and into active engagement. And it's not for everybody. And um, so that's why I think a lot of times I say engagement isn't really the goal. Progress is the goal inside of our programs and our communities can support in that, helping people achieve that progress. But it's not essential. The engagement in the community isn't essential for people to make progress in the program. I love what you're saying. And I'd also add too, like for for some of us that are more introverted, having online communities or online access points for connection is actually hugely valuable. There's people that I've met online and then turned into like real friendships. And actually you and I were in a clubhouse together. That's how we met was an online forum, you know, if you think about it. And so it brings an access point to say, okay, I... I can relate to this person. I can care about this person. I can support this person. And even just like the ability to cheer somebody on without like, yay, you know, (laughs) getting to that degree or in a larger group, it's still very helpful because like in that way, like I love cheering people on. It's one of my favorite things to do. I love connecting people. Absolutely. Like if, if I know something or someone or somehow that we can create a win for you, I am game. Because, like, I just think, why not? Why not make the world a better place, you know? Like, and and what does that look like? Well, that looks like everybody doing well. Is that possible? Maybe, maybe not, but I'd rather be a part of the possible team. And in that, like, how can I? So when I first meet somebody, I'm already thinking, like, how can I help them? Who can I connect them to? Who would be good for them to know and who would be good to know them? Because there's usually a lot of that going on as well. Yeah, so it's that, it's, authentic and genuine collaboration and connections that you're making. And I love that because I think so often people talk about collaboration like it is a formula. And for you, it's just at the heart of what you do. You're like, I love how you said, I want to be on the possible team. What's possible if I connect these two people? What's possible for person A? What's possible for person B? And you don't hesitate to make those connections. You know, I've been thinking a lot, and it's interesting that we open with something about being at a theater, but 
I've been thinking a lot about my time in the arts and like the lessons that I learned from them. Cause I, I gave up, I was working in opera in Miami when I found out I was expecting my son. So I was like, okay, well, sideline that changes things a little bit. But, and I, I left the arts a long time ago. He's about to turn 20. So this is like not recent, but I was like, what did the arts teach me? Resilience, perseverance, and doing whatever it takes. And literally those are things that like have not left me and that doing whatever it takes, no matter what, really comes in the form of collaborating with others. You know, like when you're working on a play with somebody, it is the, the show opens on this date and we have to make it as awesome as humanly possible from here to here. Now, how do we do that? Well, we do that by listening to everyone in the room. And we do that by and plusing what they're saying and seeing like, hey, well, if they can't make it work, how can I use my skill set to make that work for them? And it's just like a really different way. So when you say like is collaboration a formula, I'm like, I don't see it as such. Like I, I don't see it in that way. I see it as a genuine desire to come together for whatever the greater good or the greater project is and use everyone's skill sets with appreciation, validation, and support. Yeah. And that's ideally what we want to facilitate inside of our communities as well. I mean, because what's the point of having a community if the expert is the only person providing value, which I think is like where course and membership communities go wrong is they're just like glorified customer support channels that are public to everybody that's in the community. Because, you know, it's the, the expert is the only one that is providing answers and providing value. And to their credit, it's often not because they're egotistical and they think they're the only one who has the answer. It's often because they are afraid of what happens if they leave space and they don't respond right away. And so the community doesn't experience that gap that they get to fill by contributing. Okay. The wisdom in here, my mind just like, what? (laughs) That was amazing. But really, you're allowing them the opportunity for them all to come to a place of inquiry and become problem solvers on their own as opposed to the reliance or create a dependence on the expert through the community function. Yeah. Mm -hmm. How do you see that play out? Like, do you see things like that play out inside of the content side of the course or the experience of the course? My main drive inside of these courses, well, there's a couple of things, but one of them is actually how do we create opportunities for inquiry? And I haven't looked at it in terms of the way that you just described it, but really it's 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 learning by non-examples, right? So inside of the courses that I build, inside of one of the sections, we look at examples and non-examples. And I always think of non-examples as way more powerful than examples, right? So like, you know, the example, you tie your shoe, you walk out the door and you walk and you're fine. Okay, well, congratulations. <laughs> the the non-example, you don't tie your shoe, you walk out the door and you fall down. Okay, now we all can learn something from that, right? And so, I mean, maybe not so much in the simplest metaphor, but when you look at, you know, tying your shoe could be, you know, any form of anything related to your business right? Maybe it's like you do your KPIs, you walk out the door, your KPIs are working for you, or you've related to your OKRs, sorry, key performance indicators. So what metrics numbers are you using to measure success in your business? OKRs, what are the tasks that you're actually doing? I mean, I'm simplifying the version here, but what are the tasks that you're actually doing, right? So you've done your planning for your business and your business is going in the right direction. Okay. Well, you haven't done your planning for your business and now your business isn't going in the right direction. So you can see like the non-example hits harder. It's just like, it's a little bit different here. 
in terms of learning, in terms of progress, and in terms of understanding for others. So when you're saying it inside of a community function, I love that. Like, let them stumble and let them figure it out and let them get to a point of independence on their own. Because I do feel like that's something that is highly missing inside of a lot of online programs. I feel like a lot of online programs as they stand currently, out of no fault, I'm not like pointing fingers or pointing blame here, but I feel like a lot of them are done to the point of creating dependence. Because the idea is to buy my next course, buy my next book, buy my next program. And so some course creators, I feel maybe either don't know how to create dependence or they want to make sure that people are still in their customer success path because they're afraid that if they, if they get that independence, then they're not going to be able, they're, you know, they're going to fly. And I think it's like the approach would really to be do as much as you can to create that dependence on their own so that, and it's probably not their, that dependence, that independence on their own so that they're prepared and ready for that next bit of knowledge that you have and the next how that you have and the next way of being that you have because they've already gone through the process with you on previous courses and previous masterminds and previous events, right? So like I'm like more into the point of like how do we create that inquiry? Because the fact of the matter is people don't learn by being spoon-fed anything. If they did, you would know everything that the internet ever had that you've ever read. But more than likely, what you've learned is you can go Google something. So you've got dependence on the internet, right? And I think that all of us do. And I don't think at that point, like, that's not going to go away anytime soon. But you don't really want to be in a position as an expert, as a course creator, to have people 100% relying on you. And I think that what you pointed out there, by having their peers show them, by having them, like, stumble for a minute, and not with the not without conscious support or not without people being there with who have been taught how to care for others and guide others, right? But still having them a way to lift each other up, I think is hugely valuable. So talk to me about how we balance this desire. I love your your concept around we want them to be independent. We don't want to just like spoon feed it to them to the point where we see this a lot in programs where if they feel like they aren't following the exact model and framework that you give them, or if you don't give them an exact framework, they don't know what to do. And that leads to paralysis. It leads to people not making any more progress because they're like, oh, well, I actually have to use my brain for this part of this module. So this is where I'm going to get hung up because you've just been sort of spoon feeding it to me this whole time. But how do we balance the desire to create these independent thinkers that can strategically apply what they're learning to create success within their container with all of their unique factors with the consumer, right? The person in the program who wants the quick fix. They want the spoon fed. They want you to just tell them what to do and for them to press the magic button and for it to be a success. Yeah. So it's this and that, right? We don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. We can't not give them the information. We can't not give them the process, but they have to be able to figure out how to apply the process for themselves, right? And so that's an entirely different level. And there's no element that can go into this. There's no person that can go into this non-thinking, just doing, that's going to be able to get a result from anything. You know, the fact is more than likely, if you're successful with online programs or you're successful with online learning, more than likely you've developed a system for yourself around how do you think about it. And I think a lot of these things are more internalized and passive processes for most of us, right? 
So like, let's say this, I took an online course when I first got into online marketing and I was so excited about online marketing and I started taking some really, really, really bad courses off the start. I was like, oh gosh, this world has to change. But one of the ones I took was basically how to become a master at social media or a social media manager of some sort. And I was like, okay, well, let me learn this because I don't know anything about social media other than, you know, I have Facebook friends. Well, this was 2014 when I actually took this course, but I started studying it around 2012 when I was still wrapping my doctorate. And so I'm inside of this one and it said, you need to have an online presence and you need a brand. So you'll need a logo and you'll need colors and you'll need a website and you'll need a tagline. Okay. So I'm like, all right. And it said, basically go, go here, you know, go to 99 designs or something like that and pick out your colors and hire a person and write what you think it should be and start working on, I don't know, WordPress or something. And I'm literally sitting here going, wait, what? And so, cause it wasn't, it was just so. It's a really nice checklist and I have no idea what to do with it. I didn't know how to approach it. And I think that what we as course creators have to understand is there's three real levels and there's lots of different ways to splice courses. But when you're looking at what you want your person to get out of this, you're looking at no do and be. You're looking at what do you want them to know? What do you want them to do? And who do you want them to be? And who I was in that moment was something that I had taught myself. I had taught myself how to critically think about anything right? So I was like, okay, well, even though there's no instructions here, I can figure out that I should probably go look at who I think is already doing this in the space and examine their websites and see it and and look at it through the perspective of if I were a client coming through this website, how would I feel about that? What would I want to engage with here? What would I not want to engage with here, right? I look at comparing and contrasting their colors, like which ones are really standing out to me. I'd look at what do these taglines even mean? Do I actually even want one? Right. And so you start like analyzing things from different lenses. I call it increasing cognitive rigor, but really what I do is a blend, if you're familiar with education, of tech, Bloom's taxonomy and Webb's depth of knowledge. But the point is to stretch their thinking. And so I did this on my own. A lot of people will do this on their own when they're doing research. But inside of courses, most people miss the mark because they don't tell them to do that part. They don't tell them to think differently about it. And you can't, and when I say that, you can't just give them, I want you to think differently about this. I want you to think the way that I think. You know, that doesn't really work. I want you to figure out how this works for you, right? And so that's the part about being somebody else. Like we have to create different human beings as a result of going through our programs. And in general, as we do this, as we're creating different levels of inquiry and we're creating different levels of independence, what we're also creating is really amazing clients for us to continue to work with or to go through future programs. Because like really and truly as an instructor or an online expert, you may have some time, but you might want to not want to devote it to every time somebody's hand is up, right? Well, what if their hand was up less because you've created somebody who can do the parts that you're asking for on their own because they know how to think about it? The thing is, like, once you start training people on how to think and how to stretch their thinking, they apply it to every element of their lives unconsciously because it's just now a part of their being. They're looking through those different lenses as they approach their business, whether or not you're telling them this is the way that you want them to look or asking those kinds of questions. 
they're looking at it in terms of their life, whether or not you're telling them that, because it's now a part of who they be. So they're different. They're better for you. They're better for themselves and they're better for others. All is a part of the process. Yeah. Oh gosh, that's so good. I'd love if you can to give us an example, because I think sometimes we're so entrenched in what we think and what we teach that it, we almost need like something really concrete to go, okay, what does that mean? How do I practically help people have that perspective of how to think through a decision and how to look at things differently so that I am empowering them more than I may be now? Yeah. So to put it in the simplest form, open-ended questions. So my husband likes to say that answers are slaves to questions. And if you've ever been in a conversation with people, if you just start asking questions, they will just start answering questions. Whoever is asking them is the one that's kind of ruling the conversation. And here, you're telling me which way you want me to go. And that's a part of our agreement. Yeah. But this will happen no matter where you are. So on the course creator expert side of things, it's up to us to ask the right questions. So if you're teaching one main topic, right? Like let's go back to the shoe thing because it's really simple, right? So instead of tie your shoes, you're saying, what would happen if Johnny didn't tie his shoes every day for the next three months? What would happen if Johnny did tie yeah. his shoes every day for the next three months? <laughs> so these would be like different types of things. You know, how do you think other people would relate to Johnny after seeing him with his shoes untied all the time? Right. So these aren't really specific or academic questions here or about a business, but you start like approaching it from different angles. Right. If the shoe tying is the primary goal here, then we're asking questions about shoe tying in a different way to get them to think about it. And I say open ended because <laughs> there's like one type of question that I like, I hate, 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 hate. And I see them a lot. Multiple choice. Unless you actually need a multiple choice type of question because you're doing some sort of a certification and it's required for like continuing education credits or something like that. Nobody likes them. It's kind of like going back to like what you were talking about earlier, like things should be fun, right? Like the volleyball thing, like, oh, that's a fun yeah. kind of a community. Well, your courses should be fun also, or at the very least not be like drudgery. Like you, you shouldn't have somebody sit down at the computer to start your course and go, I have to take this darn quiz. Unless the quiz is getting them an yeah. outcome that they want, they don't want that. I mean, you got to think about it from like your perspective. Do you want that? Adults are self-selected learners, and if we're wanting them to continue in our courses and continue in our programs, we can't be offering them things that are painful. Aside from that, they're not norm-reference. So basically, in order to get a test norm-reference, they're looking to establish validity of the actual assessment. They're just something that you came up with. And I remember like when I worked at the University of Alabama, I was a TA there for a year, and I was a TA for Intro to Theater. And they left like 12 of us master's students in a room and said, okay, go ahead and create the final. And we did not know what we were doing. And we we're just like, A, B, C, D, hey. And just throwing answers yeah. out of like, what's the right answer? But if you look at those types of questions and you get, if you've done a multiple choice or you've created one, you might know that's to be true for you. Maybe you've done it differently, but all of those are in the recall box. 
right? They're recalling information. So not only are these exams that you're seeing inside of courses not valuable because they're not actually reliable or valid information because they haven't been tested against scores of other people, you know, with the same samples coming out to see that, hey, this is an actually good thing, which is what they do with standardized tests. Not that I think standardized tests are good. I'm going on a tangent here, but they exist and they exist in a way that is accurate to some degree because it's comparable data because it has been known reference. These are things you made up. And all of them are right there answers for the most part, because most people that are creating these online programs probably have a background in business, personal development, spiritual development, some sort of arena that they're an expert in, and they're probably really great at that. But when creating an assessment component like that, they're just asking right there kinds of questions. And those recall, those right there are like the most limited thing that you can ask somebody. It's like, when we look at Hess's cognitive rigor matrix that I mentioned earlier, it's like basically Bloom's taxonomy and Webb's depth of knowledge. It's like the most basic, basic, basic thing. And it's like, if we lived in recall, if we lived in that function, again, that's what Google is for. We don't need to know that. I don't need to be able to recall necessarily anything else at this point. Maybe a couple of things, but really I can find it online. I need to be yeah. able to relate to it differently. I need to be able to execute it differently. I need to be able to apply it differently. I don't need to be able to go answer like who was the 16th president of the United States. I will never like maybe Jeopardy questions. Nobody really needs to know that. So anyways, I went off on a tangent there, but like multiple choice, stay away from them. They're not good for you. They're not good for their students unless you absolutely need them. But the best types of questions to really get you know, the goods out of people are those open-ended questions that apply things at a different kind of a level. Yeah. So I'm already going, okay, I need to go back and look at all of my questions and get rid of all of the multiple choice, change all of that. No, you're fine. I love it. My team's like, oh gosh. But I'm so curious. Like, I think at least in my world, I'm one of the few that actually asks any questions at the end of a module to help. And there's a mix of multiple choice and application and open-ended and all of this kind of stuff. Because I want to know, like, what are they going to do with what they learned? What decisions have they made so that I can see that they are not just consuming it, but that they are already thinking through the application of what they've learned and then give them a chance to ask me questions too, so I can figure out where there needs to be additional clarity But for those that don't have this sort of quiz or question element to their program, how do we weave in this open-ended question concept, getting them to think about examples, applications, non-examples? Like, How do we weave that into the content itself? Yeah, so a couple of things there. First of all, there's a lot of different ways to do this, but really think about what you needed to know. Like you're probably teaching something from your own experience. You're probably going through it and and really not giving credit to the level of development that you've done within yourself as an expert to get to the point where you are. And you're assuming that other people are walking around with this information to some degree. And they aren't. And they don't have your filters. They don't know how you think. They don't know how you act. And they don't know how you be. Right? And so really have to think about like all of the different steps that it took in order to go from one place to the next. And I think that a lot of it is in that analytical types of thinking. And at the very least, if you can't get to that point, 
just looking at your text itself, like if you just look at your text before you film the lesson, right? Like whatever you've written up. And I don't actually like scripting courses, so it depends on <laughs> who you are, if you feel like you have to script it or not. Um, I've just seen too many people make a lot of editing issues and also like a disconnect to camera because people aren't being like authentic, real vibing. They don't have that kind of like feeling of caring because they're too busy reading. So that's not my favorite. So I guess back to the community point, but back to more like relationships, like you want to feel like you want to feel like the person on the other side of the camera cares about you and they want the same thing, right? When you're looking at whatever you've written up, what are the main things that need to be learned inside of this one lesson? And then take it at least if you're going to ask a question, start with a how or a why, because those are the two yeah. that are going to be the most process oriented or the most analytical. And either way, it requires like a deeper level of thinking than which, what, who, when, where, right? Those questions mm -hmm. are good if you're planning something out. If you're having them create some sort of a goal and like a process around it for themselves, let's say you've taught them how to build a community, but now they need to actually go build a community, right? So there's probably some sort of intake form there that's like a walking them through from, I have an idea for a community to, I need to actually put this into action. Some of those things are going to be who, what, where, when, how, right? Or not how, but which. But when you get to like after these lessons, when you're trying to have them be differently about it, go with how, go with why. And then you can always have them look at what they've already done, right? What they've already done to date, how that's worked for them in the past, like what the results of those actions have been, like in relationship to what you're teaching in the lesson. And then look at it from like, how does that compare to what I recommended in the video? So now you're having them compare two processes. Like, well, normally I walk yeah. out the door without tying my shoe, but today, <laughs> <laughs> today I did. <laughs> right. So, I mean, that's a very simplified version, but like, yeah, I mean, just having them even look at it from that, like, oh, well, that is different because, or it's very similar in this way and that way, but it's different on this level. So having take things apart like that. And then just to say, like, one of the questions or I felt an underlying question that you weren't asked that isn't necessarily going to get you there. It, it may some degree have clients do things surveying monkeys so that they can look at specific questions to build action training material. Um, because they're going to like points and what, you know, gives them hope and all of those kinds of things. And some of that individual's question or that company's questions. But if you can get into like Likert scales, Likert scales can give you feedback in terms of how they're feeling about things. It takes the qualitative and makes it quantitative. So basically Likert scale, and I know that you know this, I'm just telling this for your audience, is like on a scale yeah, from it. one to five or one to 10, how well prepared do you feel to walk out the door with your shoes tied after mm -hmm. taking this? Well, now I feel an eight. Okay. If you didn't answer a 10, what would make you feel like a 10? And then having them, that could be an open-ended. So now you're limiting the number of questions you're actually needing to check on in relation to that. Yeah. So any point of I an assessment. I love that because I love using Likert scales in the survey, like member surveys that we do. And then following up with that, like, well, what would have made it a 10? And I think there's a lot of insight that comes from that. Always, you know. Yeah. One of the things that is the connections are firing in my brain as you're talking through this is that although 
you may not have those questions inside of your course content, or you may not have quizzes or whatever inside of your course content. This is a big part of what we use communities for is to help facilitate the application of what they're learning. And so oftentimes we encourage people to post content that helps solidify what they're learning and helps them take it from knowledge to application. So the the questions and what we're talking about right now is perfect to help us understand what kinds of questions we should be posting inside of our communities related to the content that we're teaching to help them go from knowledge to application. And I also love hearing you talk about this no do and be on the community side of things. We talk about cause and culture being two of the four main pillars for a community. And a big part of that is shaping an identity for this individual. Oftentimes when I'm working with clients, they want their onboarding and things like that to just be action steps, you know, do this, download the calendar, et cetera. And I have to really get them to step back and say, we're shaping a new identity for this individual that just walked into your program. So we need to start working on their belief that this is possible for them, that they can be this person that they joined the program to become. Whether they realize it or not, they may think they joined to learn social media like you joined that course, but you did it because there was some aspiration that you had for your life and for yourself and that who do they need to be and how do they need to think differently and act differently to reach this result, I think is such an important question for us to understand. We do so much work trying to learn our avatar, right? Your ICA, your I, <laughs> ideal customer avatar, right? We try to learn everything we can about our audience and about that avatar that we're creating this program from. Hopefully you do that. If not, start there. But we don't ask the question, who do they want to become? And who are we trying to help them become through our program? We think very practically about the result. You know, everybody's like, you have to have a very tangible result, which sure. But that deeper question of who do they need to be and who are they becoming when they're a part of this program, I think is so important. And it it applies to what you're talking about around the content, but it, it definitely applies to how you shape your community as well. Absolutely. You want them to have as little decision fatigue as possible. So you kind of need to set it up so that they know all of the expectations, all of the expectations when they're onboarding into the course, all of the expectations when they're onboarding into the community. And a lot of that is that, like, is that what is the culture? I have a very varied past I'll say it that way. But like if I walked into a room, right? Well, I mean, I did hear something about like theater and Shakespeare and then into education and then, you know, course creation. Yeah. And like, I'm, I'm comfortable in most environments, but if you drop me off at a punk rock concert right now, I might be like, I need to go home. So like, and it's not like I don't respect music or people or, or people that would go to that. It's more just like, that wouldn't be my place. Right. And so I need to know if I fit in, not just like what to do. I need to know like, how do I fit in? And especially for people that are more introverted or are more shy, like having those expectations laid out in a loving way, it's like, oh, okay, I fit in and I fit in this way, you know, or this part of me or this side of me. So I think having those, I mean, you keep using the word expectation, but I think having that laid out just really makes it like, oh, this is easier. This is one less thing that I need to think about during my day. So that's what I'm saying, like reducing that decision fatigue. I know how to be when I'm here. I know where to sharpen my pencil. I know to sit down in my seat. I know how to be when I'm here. 
Which is so important because as humans, we are always collecting data from the people around us to determine how do we become. It is a safety mechanism that has been ingrained in us from the dawn of time that we are more safe in a community. And the more we assimilate and act like the community around us, the more likely we are to survive. And so when we walk into a party or a room, we look around and we see like, what are other people wearing? I know even when I make reservations for a restaurant, I like to look at Google and look at the pictures from the inside of the restaurant. So I can see like, what kind, like, what are people wearing at a place like this? So that I know how to fit into that particular culture. But when we're teaching something online and growing a community online, the participants don't have that same advantage. They can't easily like, and quickly look around and say, oh, this is what it's like. People like us do things like this, like Seth Godin says. They can't easily see that. So we need to spell it out for them so that they don't have that friction. They don't have that fatigue, as you were saying, around having to figure out what does it mean to be a part of this community. I love just that connection around how that leads to decision fatigue and can help eliminate friction in the program. So what would you say? For somebody who is like me, who already has an online course or somebody, a lot of the people I talk to, they already have like these seven-figure memberships. And what are some changes that they can make without completely overhauling what they've already done? What do they need to be like paying attention to or looking to make some shifts in to help people actually apply what they're teaching? Yeah. So I get called in to do that a lot. So a lot of our business is building from the ground up, but so many times it's reconstructing what's already there. And a lot of it is starting with the basics. It does start back to the customer avatar. And you really should have a customer avatar for every program, product, and service that you have. It isn't just a one and done kind of deal. You know, you need to make sure that it's refined based on each one of those. And then you need to look at how is this course fitting on their customer journey, right? So if it's not a direct fit for the next thing, right, you might need to start making some adjustments there. So there's research that says that, this is really funny to me, um, but there's research that says that too much cognitive dissonance and people can't learn. And then there's research that says that too little cognitive dissonance and people can't learn. So we solved the too little. Okay, so pause real quick. Right. What's cognitive dissonance? I like to think of it as an itchy feeling in my brain. So I don't think of it in terms of like... That is like much more consumable, an itchy feeling in my brain. I like it. Yeah. It's not like I'm having a total breakdown and I can't possibly do anything. It's just like, oh, that itches. It's stretching me a little bit. I must do something a little bit differently because this isn't quite lining up, right? And so... It's the process of learning is all of cognitive dissonance. It's all like getting existing information to wire and fire with new information. Like how do these two pieces connect? And when you're trying to figure out how those two pieces connect, it causes a little bit of itch, right? And so what they said is like, if you've got too much itchy, they can't learn and too little itchy and they can't learn. So too little, we solve that with the type of questions we ask. But too much, I like to think of it in terms of a staircase. Right. And so when you're looking at your course and you're looking at A, how it fits into other courses, but B, you're looking at your individual lessons. Are there any missing staircase steps? Right. Cause like if there's, if there's no missing steps in a staircase, I can walk it up. No problem. We're good. No, you know, even with my shoes untied, we'll be fine. But like if there's one missing stair, 
in the steps, I might have a little bit of a problem. My husband, super athletic, he will jump it. No, no issue. Two, he'll still jump it. I'll be like, honey, can you give me a hand? Three, I'm not even trying and he'll jump it. So it just depends on the type of person and their brain. But what you need to do is make sure that there's just no missing steps. So if you look at your objective and then you look at all of the lessons that get them on this journey from my friend Tim Irway calls it someplace in Sexville to someplace in Awesome Town. But that's what you're doing mm-hmm. inside of your course is you're doing that. Like, what does that path look like for them? This is the objective at the end. How do all of these lessons add up to getting them to that objective? So you first have to analyze that. Like, did we cover everything? You know, do we actually have everything in yeah. here? Is there anything that's actually too much? So like, is there- That's always my problem. It's too much. (laughs) Yeah. Well, that's normal. And that's actually normal for a lot of course creators. So I feel like course creators, for the most part, have huge hearts. That's what I've noticed, at least. And there may be others that don't, but I always play to the better angels, right? So I feel like they have huge hearts and they want to give and they want to give the results and they want these people to be transformed at the end of it. And they're so excited. They put everything they know inside a course- But you have to think people don't actually want to know everything you know. Like I'm a walking internet movie database. If we ever played Six Degrees of Kevin Bacon, I would slay anybody that came near me. My my husband's like, how do you know that that person was in that movie with that person? I was like, I worked in a video store when I was in high school. I don't know, but it's it's there still. Like I can't get rid of it. But you don't need to know all that. Like you don't need to know everything along the journey. But when we put courses together, it feels like that. And some of these programs end up being 25, 45 hours long. I've taken them. And we think that we're giving time, so we're giving value. But we're doing is we're we're taking time. We're taking value. What they want is the result. They want to get to the the actual objective. They want the thing changed as fast as humanly possible. If you're telling me that you have like the screwdriver that can screw the screw, and if it does it, you know, it'll save me 10 grand and all I have to do is pay you one grand, I will give you the one grand. And then we're moving. Like, I want my results quickly. So like for these programs, I like to look at like four to six hours for a signature program. I don't want any longer than that. And a lot of them do go longer. So look at that to begin with. If you've got longer than four to six hours, you're probably doing too much. It's like the everything but the kitchen sink. But I mean, more than likely, again, you put it together with good intentions, but do look at length. And video length, there's data to suggest that people fall off at the seven minute mark. So keep that in mind too. Anything like longer than that really question, do you need it that longer, that long, or do you need to break down your objectives shorter? Right? Like, did you put two steps on, did you create a stairway ledge (laughs) instead of putting two steps together where there should have been two steps? Right? So examine from, from that perspective, but really like the first part is just that. And that is actually where I see most failures with the programs are in that, in the construction or in the reconstruction. It doesn't matter. Yeah. The thing that comes to mind for me is one, at the end of each of my modules, I ask the question about what questions they have, like where are they stuck? What didn't feel good? Where do they need additional clarity? And I think inadvertently what I'm saying is where did I forget to put a step? Like where did I miss a step that I need to add in? And And I'm not afraid to add in more things that need to be added if I feel like there's constantly people just telling me like you missed, hey, whoa, 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 I can't get to the top because you missed this step. And what I really love is 
Oftentimes you hear people say that very few people will complete your program and even fewer will have success. And that is just the nature of online programs. That's just the nature of courses. You know, you just need to know that there's 2% of people that are going to actually make it through and see some success and be okay with that. It's never set well with me. And I don't think it sits well with most creators. I think they get conditioned to not care about the results as much and conditioned to something that I I really don't love, although I do understand that there is responsibility of the individual in the program. And I have another podcast episode on this, but there's responsibility. You are not responsible for their results, right? But you are accountable to it. You are accountable for setting up their path to the best possible path for success. And so when you're talking about this and you're talking about these different steps, what I hear is accessibility. You know, so often we talk about accessibility in our courses, but when you are a very high achiever and a very smart cookie and you're trying to translate something to the rest of us in the world who aren't high IQ, who aren't experts in your field, it's really easy to feel like, well, gosh, I did a really good job of communicating this. I don't understand why people aren't getting this. This is all on them. But the reality is, is that we just haven't taught it in a very accessible way because there are different kinds of learners. There are steps that by default are easy for us, right? It feels very easy that we don't even mention it. It feels rudimentary. It feels like we're talking to elementary, even to our participants for us to even mention it. So we leave it out. But the reality is, is that for the rest of the world, that's actually a very important piece of information that they don't have naturally in their brain that they need to learn. So I love that because you're just talking about like, how can we get back to the core of why we created this program in the first place, which is to help people achieve the result? How can we banish this idea that it's like, we're just going to default to the fact that only 2% of people are going to complete this. And we're actually going to do the hard work of making sure that we've crafted a program that doesn't miss a step and that sets everybody equally up to achieve the same results, maybe at different speeds and different times, whatever, but they all have an equal opportunity to see that success. I'm so glad you brought that up because actually we've had clients get up to 96% completion rates. And that was before I wrote my book and went into research on the marketing behind it, just on human development and learning, just doing that side of the process. So, you know, there's a couple of things in there that I think are are really, really important to, to get to. You want to know two things, or you want to be asking two things while you're creating your lessons that you want to be asking a lot, but also running it through this filter, right? So what do they need to know as part of it, right? No, do be, but then how will I know that they've gotten there and how will they know that they've gotten there? Mm. So those are two yeah, questions to be success. looking at. Yeah, yeah that, that's the real, like, how are they checking in? How are they aware that they've done it? And how are you aware that they've done it? And then the other side of thing, which I think is so interesting, and I'm so glad you said it because I love geeking out on this thing. So there's four traits that really go together. And what's interesting is a lot of these people become entrepreneurs. So if you do any courses related to businesses, online marketing, anything in that space whatsoever, 35% of entrepreneurs are dyslexic. That's a huge audience. And we don't think about things in terms of that, but most people that have dyslexia, it comes in like this wonderful pack of four things going on. So they've got dyslexia. They're probably left-handed. They have a very high IQ, most of the gifted population, and also potentially ADHD. 
So you've got more people that are actually going through your programs that are neurodivergent than you think, and there's a chance that you might be and never thought about it that way. And I say this as somebody that I've had dyslexia, and I didn't actually diagnose myself as dyslexic until I was teaching dyslexic students. And then I started going, huh, wait, what? Because my grandmother at one point, (laughs) it was so funny because my grandmother wrote a phone number down wrong and she's like, oh, it's okay, honey. I'm dyslexic too. And I was like, do you know something I don't know? That was my first, you know, because <laughs> like, I, you know, I grew up in the eighties and not everybody was diagnosed with whatever was going on back then. It was a free for all. Yeah. We're like, we're lucky we came home when the lights came on. But anyways, so like different generation, different time. So I'm like, okay. So I found out I was dyslexic about 31 when I was 31. I have an extremely high IQ. I was a lefty that they trained to be a right-handed person. And it just really just recently dawned on me that I might have ADHD, hence our form not being filled out <laughs> prior to this video. Right. And like, it just yeah, like, right. I've been studying all of these things for so long and I am really, really smart. And all I do is think about this all day long. And it literally just came to me that I could potentially have ADHD. So I think it's really interesting when we research, think of ourselves as highly intelligent people. There probably are most course creators. They are most of the time. Very, very smart. If you are in that population of people where you maybe had an IQ test and it was kind of off the charts as a kid, there's a good chance that you might have the other things too. So as much as you're like thinking like, oh, they should just be able to get it from following directions or whatever, you probably don't get it from just following directions or whatever. So like, just Mm -hmm. have like compassion for that. Like there are so many ways to differentiate by process inside of these programs. And when I say differentiate, it's basically differentiation um, differentiated instruction is basically making sure each person has what they need. Seems kind of impossible in an online program, but it's not. Like there's three ways to do it. You can differentiate by content, product, or process. So product is whatever they're going to do on the outside of it. It's how they apply it to their business, their lives, their well-being, whatever that looks like for them. The content would be like you have different programs or there's different programs that they can go through, whether they're yours or some other experts, right? There's there's different content out there that they can get. The process is how we approach what we're putting inside of the course to make sure that everybody has an access point. So when you're saying like accessible, like, yes, but think of it in terms of if you just focus on how do I keep making this accessible for everybody? What's one thing that I could do to the course to make it more accessible for everybody. Do you have PDF downloads of everything? Like instead of just having the video, do you have the script somewhere where they could just read it? So like the people that have dyslexia actually also have auditory processing issues. It's really interesting because we think like, oh, dyslexics, they can't read, so they're not seeing well. Well, actually, it's kind of the opposite. They're highly visually gifted. So they're flipping things up and moving them around like Iron Man in their head, and they don't realize that letters like flat. So dyslexic children just haven't figured out that letters are flat and on the paper, they think they're moving around, right? But it also comes with auditory processing issues, which are you can't hold on to multiple directions at once. So if you give somebody a list of three things, let's say you say, go to your room, turn on your light, sit on your bed. They'll probably get to their room. They may turn on the light. The chances of them sitting on the bed are are off. And that happens with almost every dyslexic person, which is probably your IQ, high IQ population. And probably a lot of the people creating these courses or taking these courses is again, 
35% of your audience is in that. So if you give like a long list of things to do, like I have today, you want to include <laughs> some sort of written component or some other kind of follow-up as well, right? So even just adding that element to your program will make it better, right? So back to your question, like how do you make it better if you already have it? One thing at a time. The iPhone didn't come out in the iteration it's in. The iPhone came out, I don't know how many different iterations ago, and each time they make it better. Right. And so it's just up to us to yeah. continue to look at it, continue to think about our students, continue to think about their needs and what else can we do to improve that for them? Yeah. So how does somebody work with you to do that? I know this is like your zone of genius and your expertise, and I'm so grateful to you for coming and sharing so many secrets and all of your wisdom with us that we can take and apply. But I know my community and I know there are going to be people, be people that are like, okay, Gary. And I'm one of those that's like, you know what? How about I just hire you to go through my program and tell me what I need to fix? Cause that's what I need. So how do people work with you and how do they stay in touch with you? I know how I stay in touch with you. I follow your Instagram, but what, what, where do you want people to connect with you? Facebook message me. No, the best ways to connect to me are actually on Instagram or on, you know, through our website. We do have an online course audit form. So if you want me to take a look at your course, I developed an instrument for that purpose. But yeah, you know, we do one-on-one course builds and I do reconstructions of existing programs all the time. So it just depends on what the needs are. But, you know, the best way to find out is always to just book a strategy call and see if it's a good fit. Our team is really dedicated to making sure that we only bring in people that are at the right point and place and time for them and for us, you know, to make sure it's like a really good symbiotic relationship, like the whole collaboration thing. Yeah, super smart. Okay, so just for those that are listening to this in the car or uh, while they're doing dishes, tell us your website. Tell us your Instagram. Uh, sure. So my Instagram is at Dr. Carrie Rose. So Carrie, C-A-R-R-I-E, like the horror movie, and then Rose, like the flower. And then our website. It's the horror movie. Is that is there like any other Carrie? First off, it's only our generation that's going to know that because the newer generation is like, I don't know what you're talking about. And we're like, no, it's the original Carrie horror movie, not the version two that wasn't very good. Yeah, exactly. The one, the one with Sissy Spacek in it. Um, so, and, and honestly, I don't think I've watched the whole thing. No, so uh, yeah, Carrie Underwood would probably be another one. <laughs> There's another Carrie. The, the traditional way of spelling it short for Caroline. And then the website is www.of-course.us, like United States. And we'll put links for all of that inside of the show notes, wherever you're listening to this. But I wanted to get that to you for those of you that are listening. Well, Dr. Harry, friend, thank you so much for being here. I love nerding out with you. I know we could talk for another hour and like uh, solve all of the course creator problems in another hour, but we'll have to leave it at this for now. Thanks for being with me. Thank you for having me. Thanks, guys, for listening. Hey, friend. Thanks for listening. If you like this episode, make sure to subscribe. Then do me a favor and leave a review letting me know what you want to hear more of. To learn more about the show or connect with me, head to shanalyn.com. That's S-H-A-N-A-L-Y-N-N.com. Until next time.
Hey, if you're serious about creating a thriving online community, then you need to really understand the four foundations of every thriving community. I'm going to teach it to you in a free seven-minute training. That's right. It's just seven minutes. You don't even have to give me your email address to get access. All you have to do is go to freecommunitytraining.com or DM me the word training over on Instagram to get access.